At the moment, I'm, I'm working on a book which is summarizing a lot of the work of the last years to really connect inner transformation with our activity in the world, which I think we all long for, to, to find ways to make that real, to make that work. And so this morning, uh, I want to uh, talk about a theme which really has come out of that writing, and it's the theme of equanimity. What, do, what, does, what does it mean to cultivate equanimity in our practice? And I'd like to talk for maybe 30 or 35 minutes and, uh, and then have some discussion, maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And Stephen told me that uh, the group here is pretty liberal about when it finishes, or it's flexible, I, I think you said. And, and uh, I, I love the interaction and discussion, so my preference would be to... Uh, go till 11 or a little bit before. And if, if how many people, Stephen said some people actually leave, need to leave at 10.45. Is, that, is there anyone here who needs to leave at that time? Okay, so you, you could, if you need to leave, the talk will be complete by then and you can walk out and I won't take it personally or if I do, that's a matter for my own practice. <laughs> right, so... I think I'd like to, uh, we'll see how it goes. Maybe the energy will just come to some equanimous calm at a certain time and just end. We'll see. Um, so equanimity is this very uh, central quality in our practice. It's the quality of being uh, balanced, of having a certain evenness towards our experience, having a kind of uh, unshakability in our in our being, so that we're not knocked around so much by by life, by the ups and downs of ordinary life. And yet, it's a it's a even though it's obviously very central to Buddhist practice, it can be a very confusing area. What does it mean to be equanimous? What does it mean to be equanimous about my own suffering? It's very easy to see that we can think we're equanimous and we can actually be uh, deceiving ourselves. We might be uh, passive or resigned and think that we're equanimous. What does equanimity mean in relationship to the suffering of the world? What does it mean to be equanimous about the invasion of Iraq? Whatever our views on that matter. What does it mean to be equanimous about racism? And yet we're called to be equanimous. We're called to develop equanimity, this evenness and balance. And so in my talk this morning, I want to touch really on two main areas. First of all, I want to talk about the qualities of equanimity. And then secondly, I want to talk about the ways that certain qualities may masquerade as equanimity. And this is to use the Buddhist teaching 
uh, that are, that's called the teaching of the near enemies. And some of you know that teaching in relationship to loving kindness and compassion. Enjoy the, the Brahma Vihara or the divine abodes where the near enemies are said to be qualities which look like loving kindness. So for example, a kind of compulsive attachment may sometimes look like love or like uh, loving kindness. But it's part of our practice to be able to discern uh, the difference. And so I believe that uh, the same thing is true about equanimity. There may be a series of qualities which look like equanimity that might be resignation, it might be passivity, it might be, um, it might be acquiescence to a state that's actually not, we shouldn't acquiesce to. It could be uh, a kind of distancing. It could be indifference. It can look like equanimity. So that's the second area that I'll talk about. Because I think it's very important when we're looking at equanimity, especially given the, the level of confusion. I think there's tremendous confusion about what it means to be equanimous. And we can misuse practice, as, as I'm sure all of you know. We can use practice to escape from escape from things so that we feel equanimous. So that'll be the second second main theme. In the teachings of the Buddha, equanimity is central and fundamental. And so I mentioned this teaching of the uh, the Brahma Vihara, the divine abodes, the uh, supposed. Uh, States of the gods and goddesses which we can access right here in Redwood City. You know, this, this, uh, quality, the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy in the joy of others, who are, uh, equanimity itself. And of those qualities, equanimity is listed last. It's said sometimes to be the crown and culmination of the divine abodes. And it's taken to be central as a balance. It's also one of the uh, factors of enlightenment. You know, and, and probably from being here and hearing talks, you're familiar with the various Buddhist lists, right? There's the four this, the six this, the five this, the 108 this, and I'm not going to do any of the 108 ones this morning. But uh, we also have the list of the seven factors of enlightenment. This is, this is, these are the vehicles through which how the Buddha taught. He taught through these lists. I, I get the feeling it was, a, it was a culture where it was very important to have this uh, set of core, sort of like a grid or a skeleton uh, that you could be with and it would help guide one in, one, in one's daily life. You know, you remember the... So the seven factors of enlightenment, many of you know, are the qualities of an enlightened heart or mind. Qualities like mindfulness or uh, effort, a great amount of energy, uh, rapture, rapture in the body and mind, uh, inquiry, tranquility, concentration, and so forth. And equanimity is also listed as the last of those. In the teachings of the listings of the paramis or paramitas, some of you know, we could call them the list of the Buddhist virtues. 
Sylvia Borstein just wrote a book about the, the paramis. They're usually translated as the uh, perfections or the uh, excellences, uh, the paramitas in, in Sanskrit. And they're a list of qualities like uh, wisdom and uh, generosity. They're the, they're, you could say that these are the qualities which, we, which our practice cultivates. And equanimity is the last on that list as well. So it's taken to be, uh, in many ways, an advanced quality. It's sometimes seen as being very close to the nature of nirvana or nibbana, this quality of balance that's linked with also with loving kindness. So what, what does equanimity mean? And I want to talk about... Um, I think six qualities. So I want to talk about evenness, balance. Maybe I'll talk about balance first. Balance, evenness, a certain unshakability, a quality of understanding, surprisingly, a quality of joy, and a quality of faith that are characteristic of equanimity. I want to talk about each of those. And... Again, I just want to, uh, well, I'll, I'll start with balance. Um, literally, the, the word that is translated as equanimity is uh, upeka. And some of you who have been to Spirit Rock know that the residence halls are named after the uh, Brahma Vihara or divine abodes. And the last one, closest to the hills, closest in some ways to the forest, is equanimity. And uh, upeka literally means balance, and it refers to uh, a quality of having a balanced approach towards any experience, having a way of being um, even in our energies, not being in some ways, as it were, not being bounced around, knocked around a lot. You could imagine you know, a tightrope walker or someone walking a path that's a little narrow and you can, you know, fall off to either side pretty easily. And equanimity has to do with uh, keeping balance and particularly keeping balance in, um, in challenging circumstances. You know, I was, um, it was very humbling as I was uh, preparing my talk on equanimity. Uh, I had a medical appointment. And I, and I had scheduled, I had another appointment later in, I had a medical appointment like at two o'clock or something, and I had another appointment at 4.30. And I wanted to do two errands between the medical appointment and the later appointment. And the medical appointment started 50 minutes late. And I, and I was there and I said, well, I'll, I'll do the, I'll do one of the errands. And it was going okay until a stretch of the road or a stretch of the trip that was supposed to have no traffic suddenly had a lot of traffic. And I, and I, and I was feeling my body tense up a little bit. And I was getting a little nervous. I said, I'm supposed to be thinking about equanimity. What's, what's going on? How can I be equanimous in these, in these circumstances? And it's really, I think this is what equanimity comes down to in our, in our daily life. And how can I be equanimous? I'm getting a little nervous, you know, or, you know, oh, 
you know, this traffic won't, won't and, I, and I, I, I looked at it and said, oh, how can I be most equanimous? Well, feel what you're feeling, do your best, act wisely. And it really relates to the second quality of uh, equanimity, which is a certain evenness towards experience. And this, I think this relates directly to our practice, that when we sit and when we are with our experience, we learn how to be more present and we learn the ways that, that it's hard for us to be present. When we practice, we see the ways that we uh, have a difficult time with what's unpleasant and we tend to push it away. And we have, a, sometimes uh, we may not think of it as a difficult time with what's really pleasant, but we tend to get a little bit off balance with what's pleasant because we get all excited and we grab hold of it and, you know, get shaken up and we reach for it and we do stupid things and, and so forth. And, and so the evenness uh, in our practice is to, in a thousand ways, let us see how we are not so even towards certain parts of ex- our experience. And so when we're practicing, we're cultivating, cultivating equanimity all the time because equanimity is the ability to be even and somewhat balanced. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean to uh, not feel. It actually, equanimity depends on being able to go deeply into experience. And, and this is part of where we could see how some of the distortions of equanimity start happening because equanimity is not about being calm. It's about being even and balanced in relation to whatever's happening. And we can be equanimous when our mind's raging in a certain sense. We can be equanimous when there's a lot of stuff happening. We don't feel so calm. But the key to equanimity is that we're not reactive. That we, as it were, we don't add to the situation by the reaction of mind and body. And so this is something that we, that we keep on cultivating. Um, some of my favorite teachers of equanimity are the haiku writers of Japan. And I wanted to read you a few uh, of these haiku because I think they really express beautifully this quality of equanimity as a certain evenness to experience. And the first one I want to read is from Basho. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing, Near my pillow. <laughs> Do you get the sense of equanimity there? <laughs> Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. He's not trying to say that it's, you know, either great or lousy, so to speak, <laughs> that the horse is pissing near my pillow. He just says the horse is pissing near my pillow. I don't know if this is okay for family consumption on Mother's Day, but <laughs> so be it. Uh, there, there's just a simple, there's a quality of just he's just present with circumstances which some of us would uh, have a few comments about, right? This is another one from the uh, Zen teacher Isa. And there are actually two of them. And apparently, at this time in Japan, this was probably the 1600s and 1700s, um, 
There are, anyway, there are a lot of um, haiku about fleas <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, there may have just been a lot of fleas around at that time. And so Isa, uh, Isa wrote these haikus, which I think also express equanimity. I'm sorry it's so small. This is referring to his house. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. And then one more flea haiku. This this is uh, in reference to a a very beautiful area of Japan called Matsushima. And... um, uh, Isa was going to make a trip to um, Matsushima. And so he said in his haiku, Now, you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. Off we go. <laughs> <laughs> so Isa was not complaining about the fleas. There was a certain... I mean, this, and again, it didn't necessarily mean that he was passive or, you know, I don't know, maybe he was a little resigned, but he wasn't passive necessarily in relation to fleas. He might have, he might have tried some things, you know, and, but it probably was clear at a certain point that the fleas were there to stay. And he wasn't complaining. And I think this really, uh, for me, these are uh, beautiful, humorous teachings about equanimity because some of the places that we're tested in our equanimity are places where we have difficult things, and, and especially these kind of difficult physical things. How would you know what what would you be like if you had fleas infested in your carpet? That would be an interesting um, exploration. I won't I won't take your responses at this time, but what would that be like? What would that be like? Or, we're challenged often, I mean, especially in this culture where physical comfort is so uh, assumed in some way, that uh, these small, maybe not so small, but these physical irritations or difficulties are actually wonderful places to practice equanimity. And the next time you have a minor or moderate physical irritation, think of Isa's trip to Matsushima. So that's, that's a certain uh, evenness towards uh, experience. The first quality, balance. The second, evenness. A third quality is what I would call unshakability or imperturbability. It's a quality of being able to uh, not be knocked around so much by things, not be knocked around by people's comments or by life events. And one of the... Uh, one of the most uh, helpful teachings in this way is, is a, a teaching which points out, as it were, some of the ways that we get knocked around. It's a teaching called the Eight Worldly Winds. Do you know this teaching? It's, it's one of the very interesting Buddhist teachings. It's a te- it points out that there are eight ways, and there are probably, you know, a hundred more, but they've mentioned eight. Eight ways that we typically get knocked around. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, 
praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, uh, praise and blame, and uh, fame and disrepute. And it's, uh, these are places where we can practice equanimity. Again, the, the practice of equanimity is not about willing ourselves to be equanimous, but it's about actually just keeping on watching our experience and seeing where we're not equanimous. That's why the mindfulness practice as a regular practice and as something that comes more and more into our daily life uh, is the root, is the, is the scent, is the, uh, you know, what Freud would call the royal road, the royal road to equanimity is through the mindfulness practice. And uh, I know for myself, and I think for most of us in our culture, uh, these are hard, you know. We, we've talked some about pleasure and pain. I mean, think about gain and loss. Think about how, how uh, non-equanimous we sometimes feel when we think things aren't going so well. You know, and think of the... Um, some of the great teachings of the Western tradition, like the story of Job in the uh, Old Testament, really a story about how to keep equanimous when things aren't going so well and, and go, as it were, go down to deeper parts of ourself. Or think about praise and blame. You know, how many of us are really knocked around by criticism? Probably most of us to some extent. I, I, you know, I was thinking of uh, an example... Uh, a few years ago, I was helping to co-organize a summer institute uh, for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And we did sort of halfway through, we thought uh, it was about six days, and about halfway through, we wanted to kind of see how we were doing. And so we, uh, I think we may have asked for like a small written evaluation. And people gave us these, you know, their comments about how they thought things were going. I think we had about 50 responses Almost everyone said things were going well. Two or three people were very disgruntled. Myself and most of the members of the organizer group, we instantly went for the two or three. And we took them and we, and we assumed that they were mostly true. And we had to kind of sort that one out. Do you know, but do you know how you do that? It's, that? it's that voice of, I don't know, it's the whatever residues there are from mommy and daddy when we were four, you know. You know, uh, knowing that if we are blamed, uh, we think we won't get love or whatever, you know, whatever those dynamics are. And we still carry that forward, you know, as adults. And so we're very, we're very sensitive to praise and blame. Uh, or to, uh, or to reputations, you know, or to how things go. And one of my, my favorite stories that really is also a, a, an equanimity story comes from a friend of mine named uh, Larry Rosenberg. Some of you may know he's a teacher on the East Coast. He teaches at um, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. He tells this wonderful story of when he was uh, practicing Zen. He was asked by his Korean Zen teacher, Sun Sunim, to lead a four-day retreat. And it was supposed to happen right after Christmas. And Larry was living at the Cambridge Zen Center. And um, everyone else went home uh, Around Christmas, and Larry, Jewish, so he didn't go home. There was, you know, wasn't anything to go home for or to celebrate. And uh, it was like a few days before the retreat, and no one had signed up for the retreat. 
And Larry went to Sunsunim, and he, he asked him, well, I guess we cancel the retreat, huh? And Sunsunim said no. And they came up to the day of the retreat, and no one had signed up. And, and Larry said, said to Sunsunim, I guess we cancel it, huh? He said, no. You teach it. <laughs> and <laughs> Larry sat in the zendo by himself, <laughs> and he carried out the retreat. He followed the schedule completely. There were scheduled periods for talks, and he gave them. <laughs> he said for the first day, he felt really, really stupid. <laughs> but then, somewhere around the end of the first day, uh, something came through, actually, that he saw that there was something very important that he was learning. And it's about this unshakable quality of equanimity. It's, it's really about not having so much, as it were, external reference points for what we think is right or what we think is, is important. And Larry said that he went through that and the last three days were very beautiful and that he felt incredibly inspired by that experience. He also said that after that experience, he felt very uninterested in certain kinds of discussions about whether things were good or bad in terms of events. He said that the whole there's a certain kind of numbers game sometimes about retreats, you know. How many people were at the retreat? You know, 80. Oh, great retreat. You know, how many people were at the retreat? Six. Oh, not so many people, huh? And he said after that, um, something fell away. And there was more quality of him just being himself, doing what needed to be done, and letting the chips fall where they may. And that's the quality of equanimity. It's that quality of somehow resting ever more deeply in ourselves. And it doesn't mean, you know, not caring about the views of others, but do you know that sense of going of not being as affected by these eight worldly winds, by what others say. And again, not to be impervious, but somehow we've listened, we've done our best, we, we're, we're not so knocked around. There's a, there's a fourth quality of equanimity which has to do with understanding. And understanding your insight is central to equanimity. We, don't, we can't really be equanimous without seeing into our experience and into life more deeply. And so there's a, I mean, I know, uh, one of the uh, teachers, Nayanaponika Tara, who wrote The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, that some of you may know of, which is a great, a great book on, on mindfulness practice, he, he talked about uh, equanimity as unshakable balance of mind linked with insight. So there has to be that understanding there. And it's really, again, to link it to practice, it's an understanding of the way the mind works, the way the heart works, that only comes from sustained mindfulness. It's a sense of the way, of the particular patterns of our mind. It's a, it's a sense of the cycles of the mind and heart. 
it's a sense of having seen things many, many times. And it's not so much that we, uh, again, we uh, acquiesce into horrible things, but that there's some sense that we're not shocked by them. So in that sense, we actually might be, we might have a certain equanimity about the actions of the U.S. government. If we've seen it enough and understand it enough, it's like that uh, French phrase, but uh, uh, the more you understand, the more you forgive. Like if one really goes deeply into something, something can shift. And again, it, and again, there are a lot of dangers here because there can be a shallow sense of understanding, which is more like rationalization or uh, over-intellectualization about something that really is not about really being present with the heart and with the, the depths of one's experience. And, and for me, this has been really apparent. I, I, think the, I think our relationships, when they work, are like this. We start seeing into the patterns of people we're close to. And so that quality of understanding is, I think, really fundamental to equanimity. Now, as I've been thinking and reflecting on equanimity, one of the qualities that surprised me about equanimity is joy. Because we often think of equanimity as somewhat on the grim or stoic side, right? You know, kind of grin and bear it or, or something like that. You know, that it's the quality of, um, I'm equanimous, but I'm kind of, I may have what, what's called in therapeutic circles, flat affect. <laughs> you know? And that, that, this, again, I'm pointing towards some of the near enemies of equanimity. There's something about equanimity, about deep equanimity, which has joy, and which is so refreshing. You know, and I think, and it's, it really would be a sign of the, the depths of our equanimity. Uh, for the Buddha, the joy in equanimity comes from the joy of not being knocked around by pleasure and pain, not being knocked around by the worldly winds. And there's some joy in life which is there just by our being, just by our our presence. Uh, And you know that in meditation, of course, as we're more equanimous, you know, these, I don't know, you can, on a biochemical level, we would say the endorphins kick in, right? (laughs) You know, and there's a the body is suffused more and more with joy and rapture in our practice. I think many of us know that. And so there's actually, in equanimity, there's this ability to be joyful. And this ability to be joyful even in really difficult circumstances. And one of my um, most sort of favorite books that's, that's really inspiring... Uh, is a book of uh, journal writings by a woman named Etty, E-T-T-Y, Hillsome, uh, who wrote a book, not, she didn't write the book really, but the journal of her, her, the book of her journals is called An Interrupted Life. It was published about 15 or 20 years ago. She's, she was a Dutch woman in her 20s, living in Amsterdam in 1941. Jewish background, She kept writing journals through to 1943. Eventually, she was deported and died in Auschwitz. And the journals are remarkable. They show the transformation of a young woman who at first was somewhat, we would say, shallow and self-centered. 
And they show this remarkable spiritual transformation in the uh, in very difficult circumstances. And, and what happened in Amsterdam was the Nazis occupied Holland, I think, in 1940. And there were increasingly, like in all of the occupied countries, there were increasingly restrictive uh, rules and regulations. Eventually, the Jews were sent to a transit camp, uh, also in Holland, called Westerbork, and then eventually most of them were were sent to Auschwitz. And uh, Etty grew in these circumstances, and... In her last, in the last period of time, in the last year of her life, in the transit camps and at Auschwitz, she was reported to be a tremendous beacon of love and care and hope and equanimity. And some of the writings uh, from the journal are remarkable, but particularly from this last period. And I wanted to just read one uh, quotation to give you a flavor of this uh, sense of equanimity. Because, again, it was not a hiding from anything. She was right there. In fact, her friends uh, had a plan that would have had her escape from the camps and be safe, and she refused to do that. She said this. This was from uh, the Westerbork Transit Camp, which was not a, con- which was not a uh, death camp. It was a uh, people were not killed there, although there was a fair amount of suffering. But they were, it was a, uh, camp that was uh, just they just con- it, was a, it was a concentration camp in the sense not of a death camp. And she said this: the misery here is quite terrible, and yet late at night, when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it. That's just the way it is, like some elementary force the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Against every new outrage and every fresh horror, we shall put up one more piece of love and goodness. Drawing strength from within ourselves, we may suffer, but we must not succumb. And if we should survive unheard in body and soul, but above all in soul, without bitterness and without hatred, then we shall have a right to a say after the war. And so you can see that connected with that uh, quality of joy is also a quality of what we might call faith. It's a faith that uh, is, is, is continually deepened, that equanimity in some ways is a kind of resting in life. Do you know that quality in your own experience when you when you can just be present with life and rest in it and in some way that quality is deeper than whatever happens? That's that's I, I those are the depths of equanimity. So these near enemies are something really important to see. This is to, I'll be brief about the second part of my talk because I've, I've already mentioned many, many um, ways to look at the near enemies. But it's very important to see, as in the, teach, as in the um, original teachings, 
that they're, that they're qualities which masquerade for equanimity. And I think our practice is to keep, the, the practice of equanimity is really to keep going into our experience and see where we get knocked around. That's really how we practice equanimity. And we can look for the ways that we, I think I would say, either uh, grasp hold of the pleasant qualities of equanimity or push away the uh, aversion that comes with uh, that comes with some experiences, and so the quality of indifference uh, hides a subtle aversion to experience. We can be indifferent about the suffering of others, and we may actually not want to deal with it. We may want to push it away, and we may feel I'm really equanimous. I think of one version of this is the sense of equanimity that may be linked with being in a very privileged situation, either materially or in some other way. We may be actually distant from a lot of suffering and feel pretty equanimous, but it may be a residue of the social structure that separates us from suffering. And that equanimity could be questioned in that way. It could be based on privilege and distance. And a certain amount of denial, perhaps. We could have equanimity that is based on a kind of rationalization. As I mentioned, we can be intellectually, we can have views that seem to give us equanimity, but they may, may be based on aversion. And so we have to be careful, particularly in relation to any difficult circumstances, we have to be careful about our tendencies to rationalization or to over-intellectualization about a state of affairs. You know, I know, I know that this is sometimes uh, a danger for me. You know, in you know, in relation to the state of the world, I can oh yeah, that's happening because this, you know, and I can have some view of the the nature of the world, and it may actually be a way of not wanting to get closer to things because it's hard, it's too difficult, and it may be a kind of pseudo equanimity. We may we may like the really pleasant qualities of equanimity, and so one of the one of the uh, One of the practices which I would uh, urge, on, urge to you or give to you is the practice of being tested. I think it's, an, it's a core equanimity practice. Go out and test yourself. And I, 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 maybe I can uh, end with two stories. One of them is from a friend named uh, Thich Minh Duc, who is a Vietnamese monk who's a friend of mine who lives not far from here. And his main uh, temple is in uh, San Jose, the uh, Duc Vien Temple. Uh, on uh, McLaughlin. Some of you may know, may know that area. And uh, he is, he's been a monk for 40 years and left Vietnam around 1980. Served time in prison, actually, and was tortured some. And he's a senior Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh. And he tells the story of Thich Nhat Hanh coming to uh, visit him. And Minduk is a monk, but he's out there in the world. For a lot of years, he worked 30 hours a week with uh, troubled teenagers, and they didn't—they didn't give any—they didn't care <laughs> whether he was a monk or a Buddhist or, you know, a deeply spiritual person with these credentials. And he just was out there and working with him. And Thich Nhat Hanh came and, and said to him, "You know, you're out there." You're getting tested. You really know 
whether you have equanimity, whether you have wisdom, because you have a lot of difficult circumstances. A lot of my monks and nuns, they think they're pretty enlightened. They think they're equanimous. They haven't been tested. It's not, it's not really a deep equanimity. I think you're doing something very wise. And so this maybe can be an encouragement to us to find the right places where we get tested, uh, to seek out ways to deepen our equanimity, partly by uh, questioning ourselves that we may be ready, that we may be holding on to a situation and maybe ready for another challenge. I think a big part of our practice is finding the right challenges and the right tests. And so maybe I'll finish with one, with a, a reading. And this is from Nayanaponikatara. And it's really about the ways that, uh, it's really a, another way of talking about watching out for the near enemies. Because one of the beauty of the teachings of the Brahma Vihara is that equanimity is not taught by itself. It's always taught in relationship to loving kindness, compassion, and joy. And that's the beauty of these teachings, that there's, uh, uh, they always have to be in balance. And the danger is that equanimity gets out of balance with love and compassion and joy. And of course, the other thing, the other side holds too, that, that uh, love, and, love and kindness or love and compassion can be out of balance with equanimity. So I'll just close with this reading from Nayanaponika. Loving kindness, or metta, imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, transformed and controlled, is part of equanimity, strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test by hardening and strengthening itself. Sympathetic joy or joy in the joy of others gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha a smile that persists in spite of his deep, uh, deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three uh, sublime states, the other three Brahma-vihara. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests. Equanimity being a vigilant self-control for the sake of uh, awakening does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting our real aims. Equanimity gives to love an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair, which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the the patient devotion to the work of compassion. 
So I think by that last reading, you get a sense that equanimity is also action. That equanimity means action because it means compassion. So I'll stop here. Thank you. Please, yeah. Well, I may have made a mistake, but that's what I've heard. So maybe, maybe so, does someone here know better? I, I'm pretty sure that he's just a haiku writer. And I guess the reason I'm bringing it up is um, that haiku alone, the practice of that, can create that, those kind of equanimity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll check on that. But, the, but in any case, it seems like a very wise and compassionate person. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Please. A number of things you said reminded me of a, um, a little teaching of a teacher that I had formerly. It's always interesting and recommended to me, and that is the question in situations where I'm getting anxious. Do I really know what any of them means? Yeah. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm yeah. anticipating a meeting that I walk into. Later. Yeah. Yeah. I'm anticipating the attitude. Yeah. Yeah. The very fact that I'm going to get criticized at the meeting could be in the long run very good for my practice too. So that question has always calmed me down. Yeah, that's good. To use it in those circumstances when I'm getting anxious. And that's very helpful. It's 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 it. It's really to uh, the the spirit of this is to take our experience with the, with a quality of inquiry. You know, it's okay. I notice I'm I'm feeling distress. Something new to learn. How revolutionary is that, right? To, to shift from a distressing moment. Sound the alarm bells. <laughs> but rather, a moment of distress, something to learn from. And that's not easy, is it? Because we have our conditioning. But that's the spirit of this practice. And when we can do that in daily life, our learning accelerates tremendously. And yet it's hard. And... And you're right, then we, we, we don't know. You know, it may be uh, whatever it is, you're in that situation <laughs> and you're going to be late. And it could be to, it's, it's really to um, be careful of thinking you know, which I think is the spirit of your question, right? To be careful and you can maybe say, what am I assuming that makes me think it's so horrible? You know, uh, and it's also to uh, to inquire into the emotions that are there. You know, am I judging myself really harshly? What's that about? Uh, and it may be that uh, yes, I am late again. Uh, it's a pattern. I try to do uh, six things instead of two on my way home from the doctor. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, please. <laughs> Another. Another Are you a haiku writer or a Zen teacher? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this, this is a 
It's so sad on Mother's Day. <laughs> Please. Thanks. I'm, uh, I'm somewhat surprised that I got, uh, I got some value out of your talk because um, I was struggling with feeling sleepy and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I must acknowledge that uh, for the first time in some 30 years, I finally understood the story of Job. Yeah. And uh, you said it in such a short little... You know, uh, just the two words tied together. And uh, I always had this belief that it was a story about this entity who was very mean and did some mean things. Uh, but then I realized it was just from wherever you stood to tell the story is made the difference. And it was a story about a man's equanimity, a man's... Um, It's an, yeah, it's an old teaching. It's, yeah, it, it, about faith, about equanimity, and it's about. I mean, it's interesting that I mean, Buddhist practice has, I think, more this sense. It's a sense of resting in oneself, but as one is less dependent on external uh, factors or events happening for one's deep happiness, one also is more and more connected with what's so to speak, outside with others. It's, it's, a par- it's paradoxical, isn't it? And, and in, in the Old Testament, it's, it's similar, and it's framed in terms of the relationship to God or the, the sense of faith in, in life and of, the, of the, uh, um, the goodness, really. It's this it's sense of the goodness of, of being, the goodness, whether you frame it in terms of God or in terms of more in terms of my life, my being, but there's this is this is this is deep. This is about a kind of resting. It's, it's, the, the depths of this practice point towards a kind of resting that is unshakable, even in really horrible circumstances like the concentration camps, or like maybe like some of the most difficult things that we might have experienced, and it's the or that Job experiences. It's like. Those are, those are tests that probably many of us will never have or, or won't have or haven't had. And we, we practice with the, uh, the bad traffic, the, the criticism at the meeting, and so forth. That's our, 
that's our way of being Job, as it were. Please. Maybe this will be the last one if we're going to finish at 11. There's a quote that I find helpful regarding equanimity. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, an instruction from a, a sorcerer to his apprentice. It's there are no obstructions, only instructions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are no obstructions, only instructions. Right? Um, how is that as the last word? <laughs> uh, so I want to, because I want to honor the the time, uh, eleven. And I'm, I'm happy to stay here for a little while more and talk to people if you'd like. And one thing to say, I'm, uh, Gil has invited me to do a day long on wise speech in August. So I will be back here in August for a day long, which is one of my favorite um, topics, actually, that we uh, on, on uh, working, with, having, uh, working with speech in our everyday practice. And then he also invited me to do something later in the fall on... Uh, on uh, socially engaged Buddhism. And so we haven't worked out the dates for that, but we're, I, so I um, imagine I'll see um, many or some of you um, sometime in the next month. So I want to thank you. And should we do a, um, a closing? Just a, maybe a very brief uh, dedication of merit just in a minute or two. And so letting be present now. What may have been important or touched one in one's practice today, in one's sitting or walking, or even the travel to be here, or in the talk or discussion. Are there maybe one or two things which were really vital? Remembering the qualities of equanimity, the balance, the evenness, the unshakability, understanding, joy, faith, and the near enemies of equanimity. And are there any intentions which come out of this morning for one's practice, for something in one's life? So we dedicate the fruit of this morning to all beings, knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for all others. May the fruit of the time together be shared widely with all with whom we come in contact. May all beings awaken May all beings find the depths of equanimity. 
and the depths of compassion.